Hello, I'm Chris Fleming, Investment Director at Square Mile, and welcome to the latest episode of Talking Research. Today, I'm joined by Hugh Gimber, Global Market Strategist at JP Morgan Asset Management, and James Ashley, Head of Market Strategy at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, to discuss the impact of higher interest rates on consumers, the prospects for commercial property, and much, much more. So let's kick this off. When will higher interest rates really impact consumers and corporates? Perhaps, Hugh, do you want to kick off to start with? Of course. Well, thank you for having me back. I guess this is the old question of long and variable lags, as central bankers like to put it. So this idea that as interest rates increase, the slowdown effect that they have on the economy takes some time to come through. And I think that's exactly what we've been seeing over the past 12, 18 months, that as the Bank of England and other central banks have been raising rates, it's taking some time for that impact to take effect. There are some good reasons for that, both if we look at corporates, they're less interest rate sensitive than they were in previous rate cycles. So, for example, when you look at the UK property market now, we've seen this clear trend of people moving away from floating rate mortgages towards fixed. And therefore, it takes time for higher mortgage rates to slow down consumer spending. Similarly, in terms of corporates, you know, corporates did a good job of extending out the length of their debt given the very low interest rates that we had in 2020 and 2021, therefore making them less sensitive to the increase in base rates that we've seen. So when will it have a real impact? Well, I think, first of all, we can say with confidence it's taking longer than it normally would. But we do still believe that ultimately there is a lagged effect on the way and that we will see activity slowing, particularly as we move into 2024. But I think, frankly, this is a very imperfect science. It's always very difficult to sort of pin the tail on the donkey uh, as to exactly which month we're going to be looking at. Thanks, Hugh. James, do you have uh, further to add to that at all? I mean, I'd, I'd agree with everything that Hugh said there, that the kind of long and variable lag commentary is the economist's way of saying we don't really understand how this works. And that's not a dig at Hugh. We use the same language, the Bank of England uses the same language, but it is this imperfect science that the variable nature, I think, is the critical element here, that you might think that historically monetary policy feeds through with a lag of maybe 18 months, maybe as much as two years. But there have been some substantial changes in key parts of the economy that will affect that. So Hugh quite rightly mentioned the changing nature of the mortgage market, the fact that you now have more fixed rate mortgages and it's going to take time for those to roll off. But the nature of the housing market itself has changed. We're no longer in the situation where the modal share of the housing market is those who have mortgage properties. In other words, there are more people who own their house outright, no mortgage, than people who actually have a mortgage on that. Now, of course, housing isn't the only channel through which interest rates affect the economy, but it's one major channel. So if the sustainability of debt financing is partly contingent on mortgage repayments, and mortgage repayments are no longer as important as they once were, both because of the changing nature of the housing market and the changing nature of mortgages, as you said, that's going to have an impact. The other bit that's just worth throwing into the mix is that epidemiologically, and from a health perspective, COVID might feel like a lifetime ago. It feels certainly a distant memory to many of us. But from a policy perspective, one of the reasons why we haven't seen consumers being hit as rapidly as perhaps we might have previously expected is the accumulation of savings that was built up 
during the COVID lockdowns. Remember, the household savings rate went up to about 30% during the peak lockdowns. Now, of course, that's been eroded very rapidly, given how high inflation has been, and it's uneven from one household to the next. But you've still had, for a substantial period of time, this war chest of savings that households have been able to use as a kind of cushion or buffer during this inflationary spike. That's now coming to an end. So the combination of mortgages rolling over, going on to higher fixed rates, the combination of savings being drawn down, the combination of consumer confidence, business confidence being eroded, all of that to us points towards consumers now beginning to show the effects of everything that's going on. And if you look at the data right now, real consumption is down to basically flat year over year. Nominal consumption, taking into account for inflation, is about 10%. Take, take inflation out of the equation, we're flat. And, and is that, you know, particularly focused on the UK or the US and Europe in a very similar situation? I mean, we're dealing with a global economy here. and Yeah, so the, I mean, you might have further comments like this. Everything I've just said is very much viewed through the UK prism. Yeah. The tensions that you see in the US, in Europe, in most of the developed markets are pretty similar. But perhaps the UK is an extreme version in the sense that inflation, for various reasons, has been stickier. The mortgage structure, the housing market in the UK is peculiar to the UK. So I think the general narrative that we'd be just saying that monetary policy feeds through with long and variable lags, the strict changing structure of housing, the changing structure of interest rates and so on, that, that apl- applies universally. But I think the UK is the, if you like, the extreme version of all of that. And, and would you say that's the same um, on the labour markets, Hugh? I mean, it's one thing we've had record levels of unemployment and that's been a key focus uh, for the Fed in the US and even the Bank of England have been looking at it quite closely. You think that's going to continue? So I think there are some areas of similarity between the US and the UK in terms of labour markets, but there are some differences as well. Mm-hmm. I, I think in terms of the similarity, this is really a story, I think, of labour market hoarding. And by that, when you look back over the past couple of years, you've had this really uneven distribution of demand. So you've had almost all of economic activity, trying to squeeze through a very small part of the economy at one point in time. So you go back to 2020 and 2021, there was no services activity. It was pretty much all goods activity. And therefore, at the time, manufacturers were saying, we need more workers because the demand is really, really strong and we can't find them anywhere. And then you roll into twenty or the latter parts of 21 and into 22 and 23, where it's primarily been services-led activity, and therefore all the services sectors have been saying, we desperately need to hire, we can't find the, the right amount of workers. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I think what we're going to see over the next 12, 18 months is that that memory of it being very difficult to find workers is going to mean that when businesses do see demand start to slow and those lagged rate hikes start to weigh on economic activity, we think businesses are actually going to be more inclined to hang on to a few more workers than they may normally would because of all those recent memories of just how hard it's been to hire. So to be clear, I expect the unemployment rate in both the US and the UK to be ticking up over the next six to 12 months. I expect the labor markets to continue to weaken, but I don't think you're going to get back to unemployment rates of a typical recession, let's say, because of that recent memory and the challenges in finding workers. Okay, James, you got something further to add to that one by the looks of it? I think the the one bit just to add is in as far as it relates to your first question, when will we start to see consumers and corporates starting to 
flow investments, payback consumption in response to everything that's going on. The hoarding argument, I fully subscribe to, the one that Hughes just very eloquently laid out, I fully subscribe to, but it only applies if businesses think that any recession that might materialize is going to be short and shallow. If you're a CEO and you're thinking there's going to be some unholy meltdown of the economy coming, then you're going to shed labor, you know, irrespective of the cost of recruiting in a few quarters time. You say, look, we've just got to batten down the hatches. I want to be very clear. That's not what we see coming. But if our forecasts are wrong, if there's negative, nasty surprise to the economy and we end up with a deeper, more protracted recession, then you will, of course, see the labor market respond to that. So base case, I think Hugh's absolutely right. We see a bit of slack emerging in the labour market, unemployment creeping a little bit higher, um, but nothing that's too disastrous from a macro perspective. But if expectations around the depth or length of recession start to shift, then that labour market narrative is going to be rethought and the hoarding that we're seeing at the moment could very, very rapidly switch. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you, guys. So we touched on commercial property, I think, before and, and um, you know, valuations on, on residential properties. Perhaps we can dig a little bit deeper into the impact on, on corporate properties. I mean, it's a very different landscape than what it was pre-COVID to what it is now. Um, it's historically been a good diversifier for retail funds or multi-asset funds. Seems to be out of the game a little bit. Just wonder if you've got a little bit of further intel you might like to share on on the property on the property market. Sure. So I, I mean, I can jump in. I, I think for me, this is a real story of differentiation. So we've been looking at some of the data that we have in the the guide to alternatives pack that we publish um, over the past few days, and it is staggering just how different rental rates are, vacancy rates are in different parts of the commercial property market. I think it's really important to be clear about where you're talking to. And just to give you a couple of examples of that, if I look in London where I'm sitting today, office vacancy rates at the moment are about 8% on average. But in the West End, one of the most desirable parts of the London property market, they're less than half of that. Versus in the city where you have lots more supply of big office blocks and vacancy rates there have doubled pre uh, compared to pre-pandemic. So a really big dispersion. We're seeing similar dynamics in lots of other big European cities where the vacancy rates that you're seeing in the central business districts look very different to in less desirable parts of the city. And then similarly, if I think about office versus industrial, for example, you get some very, very similar characteristics. So you go over to the US and you think about the kind of really strong um, increases in rental yields that we've seen in um, some parts of the industrial sector versus traditional bricks and mortar retail, which is coming under much, much more pressure. So I think the outlook for commercial property is pretty differentiated. We'd still feel much more comfortable at looking at where you have the, the lowest level of high quality supply and the strongest demand, which is really in that industrial and logistics space. At this point, much less comfortable thinking about high street retail or some of the less desirable office space where I still think that this combination of, of rising rates and just changing preferences are likely to continue to weigh on prices for some time. Brilliant. Thank you. James, are you going to add a little bit there? Or... Well, just, just very briefly, I think that, that need for granularity is spot on. So to make some great pronouncement about we like real estate or we don't like real estate is 
I think misleading. It, it does require both a regional and sector focus and probably even more granularity beyond that. The only thing I'll just add to the mix is that for many of us, for both personal and professional reasons, real estate consumes a lot of our attention. But actually, in a multi-asset portfolio, the direct allocations that we would have to that would be relatively small. So depending on what your investment objectives are, what your timelines are, and so on, um, that these numbers will vary. But indicative, we might be looking at somewhere in the region of about 5%. Uh, overall exposure to real estate. And of course, you might have some indirect exposure through equity markets, through credit markets. But if we're just thinking about real estate as a standalone asset class, of course, we should pay attention to it. Of course, it's important. Of course, it has macro as well as investment consequences. But it's, it's not likely to be one of the biggest building blocks of a multi-asset portfolio. With all this noise about interest rates and inflation, why should uh, investors remain invested rather than take the relatively risk-free option of 4% on deposit, for example? James, did you want to have a crack at this one first, please? Sure, happy to, yeah. Um, so look, let's start with the, the positive message on cash. Cash is back. There's nothing wrong with saying in a multi-asset portfolio, you want to have a cash allocation of these sorts of yields where depending on which geography you're looking at, you know, UK, you might get around 4%. In the US, you might be getting closer to 5 or even over 5 in cash and cash equivalents. That, that's, that's a good part of a portfolio. You know, that's a decent return. It is important to reflect on how that compares, though, to where inflation is. So here in the UK, of course, we're talking about inflation that is still well over 5%. So in real terms adjusting for inflation, then that four, if you're really lucky, 5% that you might be getting, even on your ISAs, you're probably looking at negative rates in real terms. So nothing wrong with cash, but let's just be realistic about the real returns that you're going to get on that. And let's go back to the first principles of being diversified. So if you see some attractive risk-adjusted return opportunities in things like credit markets, fixed income, in equity markets, then we would be of the view that having a diversified portfolio would provide some degree of exposure to those. So I guess to use the old adage, don't put all your eggs in one basket. So cash looks more attractive now than it has been for some considerable length of time, but negative real rates and the need for diversification suggest that you do want to look further afield as well. I mean, I guess that rolls into the big question, doesn't it, Hugh? You know, in relative to to bonds even um, and the yields on offer there. I mean, I mean, what does what does all this mean with inflation and interest rates for the outlook for maybe uh, bonds and equities? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, on the equity side, it's really important here to, again, specify where in the market you're talking about. So I've seen lots of charts recently looking at the yield available on cash, for example, relative to the earnings yield that you can get from the equity market. And, and I think here, some of the challenges that if you're only buying the index, frankly, wherever you look in the world, you're pretty likely to end up with something which is relatively expensive versus history. Okay, maybe the UK is the one exception to that. But if you're looking at the US, if you're looking at European stocks today, index levels look pretty expensive. Let's be clear about it. But then when you dig one level deeper, you just see how concentrated some of these markets have become. And therefore, again, sort of to call out a couple of numbers here, take the S&P 500 as a good example. So the biggest US equity market index that we follow, if you take the top 10 stocks in the US equity market today, you're going to be paying close to 30 times forward earnings to own those top 10 stocks. If you're looking at the rest of that index, so the remaining 490 odd, you're going to be paying something like 18 times. So I think there still are opportunities to be found within the equity market, but you have to tread very carefully 
where you've seen some very, very strong returns in the first half of this year, led perhaps by a combination of excitement about AI and this idea that inflation's fading away and maybe the central banks can start to be our friends again. We're a little bit nervous about that narrative. It feels almost like this is all just a bit too good to be true in terms of the strength of the returns that we've seen so far year to date. And therefore, this is a time where fundamentals really are coming back to the fore and higher quality businesses, businesses with really strong levels of cash flow are a really good starting point, regardless of which sector or region you're looking at within the equity market. James, I mean, it's a good point Hugh's made there about higher quality earnings. I mean, that part of the market doesn't appear to have reacted too violently so far. Um, do, you, do you have you said thoughts on perhaps why that has been the case? Well, so let, let me just zoom out and kind of contextualise that. So he's quite rightly said there that there are opportunities in equity markets, whether that's in smaller cap stocks, whether it's in quality. You, know, you can choose which god you want to pray to, but there are various flavours there within the equity universe that might still look relatively attractive. I guess the point I would just try to emphasise is to say that if you look at equity market valuations in aggregate, and we've just said that's not necessarily the right thing to do, but if you look at them in aggregate, we're looking at UK equities, we're looking at US equities that aren't at record highs, but they're not a million miles away from it, despite the fact that we're talking about policy rates that are at multi-year highs, despite the fact that we're looking at economies where there's a realistic possibility of recession, that to me looks like equity markets are a little bit over their ski tips. So we can say that within the equity universe, quality equities might look more attractive than the rest, but we are looking at now where's the best opportunity, quite not a challenged opportunity set. So equity is obviously an important part of the multi-asset portfolio, but if we think right now, where would we tell tactically, there'd probably be a slightly stronger bias towards looking at fixed income markets, whether that's government bond markets, high quality credit. And again, you've got to be grandly thinking about regions and sectors so I'm not talking down equities in aggregate. I'm simply saying that a really grander appreciation of both risks and opportunities is required across all asset classes. And on a relative basis at this point in time, we'd lean a bit more towards fixed income, I think. Very interesting. Well, thank you very much, chaps. I, I believe that's all we've got time for today. Um, so Hugh and James, thanks for joining me today and taking the time to share your thoughts. It's once again, much appreciated. And thank you to the listeners. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. To keep up to date with the series, please subscribe to our newsletter or you can follow us on Spotify or Apple Music. Thank you very much. This podcast is only aimed at professional advisors and regulated firms and should not be passed on to or relied upon by any other persons. It is not intended for retail investors who should obtain professional or specialist advice before taking or refraining from any action on the basis of this podcast. Remembering past performance is not an indication of future performance. It is published by and remains the copyright of Squaremar Investment Consulting and Research. Squaremar makes no warranties or representations regarding the accuracy or completeness of the information contained herein. This podcast represents the views and forecasts of Squaremar at the date of issue and may be subject to change without reference or notification to you. Nothing in this podcast shall be deemed to constitute a regulated activity or an invitation or inducement to engage in investment activity, and it is not a recommendation to buy or sell any funds or investments that are mentioned during this podcast. Thank you.